0: All right, episode 12, uh, Ross Githens, welcome, man. Thank you. Yeah, glad to have you. Um, we're going to talk a little bit today about addiction, um, getting to know the addict a little bit, uh, myths and truths, and that's just really the goal of today is to kind of eliminate stigma and then to help people understand, like, what is addiction, who are these people who struggle with this thing, um, and what to do about it, so welcome.
1: Thank you, man. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Tell, me, tell everybody a little bit about yourself and uh, who
1: you are and what you do. <laughs> Well, see, I was born and raised in Shreveport, so I've you know been here my whole life, and um, parents were, you know born and raised here, so I- I've loved Shreveport. I've I, I lived in T- Dallas for a few years, and we couldn't wait to get back. So, I, I guess I can just start with the beginning of uh, you know I grew up going to Riverside, went to Uri, I went to Shreve for a couple years, and kind of went wild and um, found drugs and alcohol and quickly realized I liked it a lot more than my friends did. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it just kind of went wild, went crazy. And my mom and dad being good parents kind of moved in and said, you know, listen, we're not gonna let you do this. And so they found a, a treatment center in Phoenix, Arizona that I went to in 1995, mm. as my baby would say, back in the 19s. Nice. Uh, I went there for six months and it truly changed my life. Cause it was kind of the first time I'd met a therapist. I really clicked with a therapist. And uh, I was so impressed that he did that for a living. It kind of not only did I get off drugs and alcohol, uh, but I I really admired his job and thought, man, this is there's no way this is a real job, you right. know? Because I I knew other business people, other people who had their jobs, and it was just this understood evil mm-hmm. that they hated. And I thought, man, if I could talk to people for a living, it just it sounded like a dream. And so, you know, the dream was born, and I. <clears throat> I finished there and came back and finished at Evangel, and um, made some good friends, and then went to college down in Louisiana College, down in Alexandria, loved Pineville, Uh, and then I married my girlfriend in uh, 2002, and then we uh, left, we we lived in Shreveport for about a year or two, and then we moved to Dallas, where I went to seminary over in Fort Worth at the Baptist Seminary, Mm -hmm. and got my uh, Master's of Marriage and Family Counseling, and I finished that in 2006. And so I, I guess, you know, coming out of seminary, I, I, I guess my dream was to do just counseling. I really didn't know addiction would be a specialty. I didn't know that addicts ever went to professional counseling. So I just thought, you they know. went to rehab. Right, yeah, because that's what I did. When I, I mean, when I came out of rehab, uh, they told me that, you know, I probably would make it. I was too young mm-hmm. to be sober and that there was still some wild left in me. And so, like a good addict, I... I did everything they told me and I became addicted to going to AA. And so when I came out of rehab, they told me to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. I think I went to 105 meetings in 90 days because wow. I'm, I'm an addict, right? Yeah. <laughs> like,
0: if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. <laughs>
1: like. And I mean, that's really great substance abuse recommendations. We want you to build a support system. All your friends are in recovery and AA was so gracious and nice to me. Uh, of course, back then you could smoke in a meeting, so you couldn't see from the back of the room to the front of the room. Right. By the t- end of the hour, but uh, but man, there were just there was so much healing that happened in those rooms, and the twelve steps, and I really learned the work that I had to do to be set free, and and realize why I preferred being high and drunk to prefer to being sober. Mm-hmm. And I think that was definitely a miracle that God gave me was that. In the recovery program they said if you don't come to faith
0: you you will die I mean, yeah. that's you won't make it as right. an addict and that was what to what was that late 90s that was 95 yeah mm-hmm. so things have changed a lot since 95 to here even in like the whole you know god is my higher power and you know yeah. the focus on kind of christianity i mean even now in 2020 i mean it's much different much right? different
1: yeah so in, i think that when i heard the history of aa was in 92 they removed a lot of the god literature and uh that was the beginning of them saying uh the higher power talk uh but you know step two says came to believe in a higher uh, power greater than ourselves but step three says made a decision to turn our will and in our, in our life over to god as we understood him so i, I feel like the god literature has been changed but it's for me in my own life it was a warm-up for those of us that didn't like the church or were hurt in church and was kind of a side door entrance to, you know, listen, there is a faith, there is a God. We all kind of know that because mm-hmm. we've all, most of us have had experiences where we have felt something is there, you yeah.
0: know? Yeah, for sure.
1: But I loved AA because AA was so instrumental for men 10, 15 years older than me just looking at me saying, You are better than this. Don't wreck your life the way I have wrecked mine. And um, now I think that my faith kind of clashed with AA and the fact that. Uh, for me personally, AA was a great introduction to faith, but uh, it kind of left me yearning for more. Mm. And so I think that's where I looked for the meat of church and the meat of Bible study and fellowship with other believers. Not to mention, it was kind of hard to quit smoking when you're hanging around with <laughs> yeah. a lot of smokers. So, And no judgment to smokers. I just, I wanted, I wanted the healing to keep going. Right. And so one of the rules in AA was that if you went to a church service, that kind of counted as a meeting. Oh, yeah? As you you know, push through the program. Gotcha. <clears throat> and so, uh, but yeah, so yeah, I, so yeah, long story short, I I, I definitely am an addict and and recovery to this day. Uh, I've been sober 25 years now.
0: Man, that's incredible.
1: But, and, and glory to God. I mean, I think that the truth is he set me free and, and I'll always be an addict. I mean, that's, that's, I think that's part of what most addicts have in common is we kind of get it that we're wired to do anything that feels good more than we should. Right. And so, if it's exercise, I mean, I'm ridiculous. If it's technology, whatever the thing is. <laughs> yeah, we
0: were talking about that before with iPhones and. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just I
1: I love legal addictions, and so me and my wife just has to negotiate what's, uh, what's you know irresponsible and what's, you know, like I'm gonna work out six days a week, and she's like that that's a problem. Right. You know, you're a dad, you're a, uh, you're a husband, but, but yeah. So I finished seminary in 2006, and then. Uh, I took as many addiction and trauma classes as I could I just really found so much interest in that mm-hmm. and then um and then I started my practice in 2007 I got hired here at a local group and uh, built my practice and that's where I met you I think you came in 2011 I think 2010 yeah
0: um I got out of seminary in 2010 <clears throat> and then you know started at Samaritan somewhere in there while I was working at the children's home so yeah yeah and I was just sharing offices with it wherever I could find a spot yeah Yeah. And I'd really, I mean, I think that's where our relationship really blossomed was, you know, getting to work with you and getting to hear about you working with addiction because you're, you're, tell me your credential on the addiction part. I'm a licensed addiction counselor. Right. And so I hadn't really ever done any of that. I mean, Mm -hmm. I had went through my own drugs and alcohol, but really not any addiction, you know, 12 step kind of need more coping and compulsivity. And, and so it was just cool to see you do that. And I didn't really know anybody else. And so to get the staff cases and hear you talk about is really where I really started to learn about addiction um, and get to just have a male on staff that's friends and get to know each other and, we're we're not real common among therapists. No, for sure. Yeah, the male the male support in therapy is you know we're usually in a room and it, I mean even at Samaritan was us two and like nine women. Yeah, you know so and here it's you know three or four of us and fourteen women. <laughs> so it just the the percentage just continues to increase. I mean I remember being in grad school and being one of you know five guys out of a sixty person cohort. Yeah. You know, you go to trainings and you're one, so, you know, I've really valued that about you and, and getting to do that. So yeah, so you were at Samaritan doing that for what, how long? Ten and a half years. Yeah. Yep.
1: I started in 07 and then I came on staff with you in February That's right. of uh, 18. Is that almost three years? Yeah. It's yeah. It's crazy. I know, right? It feels like three days sometimes and it feels like 30 years sometimes, but.
0: Yeah. So with your background in that, kind of talk to us a little bit about what, what is addiction um, and then we'll get into kind of myths and truths. Yeah, to me,
1: my definition of addiction is that uh, it, it is a compulsion and impulse, a insatiable desire to do something that changes how I feel or or, or my mood, my, my, my energy, anything. And I think that is part of the love that I think addiction was for me, at least. Is I, I definitely can say that, that drugs and alcohol were my first love mm-hmm. because for me personally, I don't think I realized the pain I was in until I became drunk or high. Mm-hmm. And so that relief, oh, I mean, that was, that was, I'll never forget that. I'll never forget how good it felt to get a break from my unforgiveness, to get a break from my rage, to get a break from me. Mm-hmm. And I think that is where most addicts have a story of something they're trying to get away from. And I think that in studying addiction, we, we just have various routes, but it's all the same common thread that 90% of addiction, I think, is the same goal of I want to get away from me. Mm-hmm. I want the volume of my head to be turned down. Yeah, And so I, I hear there's some, there can be some judgmental things said against other addictions uh, that are less embarrassing or more private, you know, uh, a smoker versus a porn addict, right? A, yeah. a smoker can't really hide that addiction very well. Uh, but I think that's what I think addiction is, is addiction. And, and I feel it is a level of worship as well. Is that I heard a, a friend of mine talking about uh, that you know Adam and Eve were tempted by the apple, by the fruit, because it was going to be a substance, uh, something that the creation could do that we believe now the creator can actually do for you. Yeah, but it's I think that's the core of addiction is that I want I want something to, to make me feel better to give me peace. Right, so it's using something external to that's change it. your internal. That's it. Issues, and I think that's why the the the. The the core of most recovery programs, especially 12-step programs, are let's take away the substance and let the the God, the maker of all peace, do what he is so great at doing, Mm -hmm. which makes sobriety so much sweeter than the best high, the best drunk, the best anything that the world has to offer. Because there is no come down. There is no hangover.
0: Right. You know, we see in film and, you know, in movies and things like that, you know, the addict, the crack addict, the, the different kind of scratching your neck, looking for the next itch. Um, why do you think culture has such a hard time having empathy for addicts?
1: Because I think they see it as a weakness of the will. And, and we're in an American society that is capitalistic and says, you make the millions, you make your future. And if you can't control you, then shame on you. You are childish, you are uh, reckless, and, and we, we make fun of it. And so I think that's one of the issues I see with most people even calling themselves an alcoholic is they hate the stigma. They, they don't want to admit defeat. Right. And they love the fantasy that I am always conquering. I'm always able to defeat. And so that's a, you know, that's a common statement of most alcoholics is I'm in control of this. And so an assignment I often give them is I'll say, okay, just quit drinking for 30 days, and then let's talk. <laughs> and they'll quit. And and they're suffering. I mean, we, we call it dry drunk in, their, in, in, in AA, much like if you incarcerate an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. But they are not happy. Right. They have just they have determined themselves. And so I'll meet him, and I'll say, how did 30 days go? And he goes, man, I made it. I did it. And I say, well, what did 31 day look like? And he goes, man, I got so drunk. It was great. <laughs> I'm like, oh, No you're an alcoholic and he's like what do you mean no like i quit and i think that's a that's a very interesting part of addiction is people think oh i only get drunk on the weekends mm-hmm. i only get drunk on holidays but when i drink oh it's 25 beers right but it'll be 20 days between drinks i'm not homeless i mean i have a job right i got a wife and kids i'm not an alcoholic
2: mm-hmm.
1: but what's interesting is they can't have a beer Right, or if they have a beer, they're they're proving something. I find.
0: Yeah, explain that a little bit.
1: Well, th- that's that's part of the the the, the yield of control, that the loss of control is they're going to say, "I'll prove to you, I can only have one beer."
2: Because
1: mm-hmm. I really believe that in my life, if I had a beer today, I probably would drink normal for a month. Because I'm healthy, I I, I have peace. I'm, I'm still connected to a loving wife, a loving God. I got great kids. Life's good. I really don't have anything to run from. But I know me. Right. Is I think the love affair of alcohol would be rekindled, and it would turn into two beers.
0: Right. So talk about that from kind of a brain standpoint. So why is that from a neurology standpoint that addiction is different than coping? Well, I think that can you have too much
1: peace? And so I think that that I think neurologically I think what's happening is the dopamine to me that the, the feel good chemicals there is a, a a discontentment at what it's done for me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the core of most addiction, is the lie is if I just have six beers, if I just have nine beers, mm-hmm. I don't know why my wife's so mad at me. I'm a good guy. I don't beat her. I don't cheat on her. You know, You hear these sayings, just let me come home and drink my 12 beers. And what's happening is obviously the liver's hardening. The brain is becoming less reactive to the alcohol, and so the feel-good chemicals start going away. And you hear that with pain pill addiction as well. They're not even using pills to get high anymore.
0: Right. It's just to avoid sickness. Yeah, I saw, uh, I saw some brain scan stuff the other day, and it was talking about how after you've been an addict for so long that you're not, try- you're, not, you're not really actually even getting dopamine, you're just avoiding withdrawal. That's it. That your brain can't even really reproduce the dopamine and the serotonin that it needs to. Yep. You're just, you just have to keep doing it so you don't hit that bottom. And
1: I find there is uh, a pain avoidance that comes to addiction is I'm going to drink just in case I'm in pain. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like o- I can't. Or if
0: I'm super happy.
1: Oh man. Yeah. It's a sunny day. We've got to drink. Yeah. Like, it's rainy. We always drink when it's rainy. <laughs> right. Oh, it's going to be a tornado. Man, if it's going to be a tornado, we're going to make sure we get our, you know, our beer or whatever
0: the Absolutely. substance is. I mean, it's- I hear that all the time with porn. It's like, you know, well, oh, I had a great day, you know, great weekend. I need to capitalize on that and make it even better right it's that it's not it's the chasing the high there it is it's always trying to chase that pleasure principle and how high can i get so if this was good i need to take it up to the level if it's crappy i need to take it up to the level there it is you know no matter what it's chasing and there's the discontentment Mm -hmm. there is the insatiable
1: disease no matter how much i make how much i work how much i drink it's never enough
0: yeah so you said earlier, you know, that people have a bad view of it because they think people can just stop and it's a willpower issue. So how is it not?
1: Well, it's not because the little voice in their head is is becoming louder and louder and louder, and and so I would argue that most addicts have some type of trauma. Now I've met the one out of ten, the two out of ten, <laughs> 10 that truly have had nothing happen to them. They're they're really good people who are happy and they just enjoyed partying and maybe some things happened while they were partying that I would argue turn into a lowercase T trauma, but, mm-hmm. but, but they're genuine happy people. But I would argue that the vast majority of us have a story, have something that happened that we don't want to happen and we don't want to talk about. Mm-hmm. And so we don't have the skills to cope. We don't have the skills to process. We don't have the skills to digest it any other way we just know that alcohol whatever the drug is helps me to keep that lid that lid a shut
0: right and i know for you you're talking about alcohol so that's kind of be, that's kind of like you know us using a woman in sex addiction yes. you know as the victim because it's just majority and that's your that's your thing but you know it, you could say that for any Absolutely. substance really. mood altering substance yeah.
1: whether it's weed or uh, pills or exercise work i mean i i, I just i see the I heard a guy describe it as a carousel of addiction Mm -hmm. is that as I quit smoking alcohol became more and then weed yeah, and then another substance because it's often that people will blame a substance and say oh it's the beer I gotta drink more whiskey oh it's the whiskey I should have drank beer
0: well that's what's interesting about like the whole pot conversation is you know there's a lot of research showing that you know marijuana is not addictive that's kind of the argument what do you think about that? it's interesting that we
1: say that when it's You know, most hardcore users, their first drug was weed. So I I do agree it's not physically addictive. I don't agree that it's not psychologically addictive because I think most people smoke cigarettes. And then the first time they smoke weed, it's like, wow, like this is the first neurological drug I probably ever put in my body. Mm -hmm. And it rocked my world the first 10 times I did it. But there's the discontent, there's the numbness to it where I meet addicts who smoke weed like cigarettes on a daily basis and they use hardcore drugs on the weekends. They use hardcore drugs when they can afford it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, you know, I think that there is always going to be a justification to, you know, if we legalize marijuana, for example, if, you know, alcohol, which has been legalized for years, uh, it it is, I, I often hear that as a defense of it, that it's, it's healthy. It's, you know, it comes from the ground and it's not harmful. And I just, I think common sense proves otherwise that if you need a chemical, if you need a drug, there, there's something that, that's said about that. Now, listen, some of us need glasses. Some of us need heart medicine. I'm not saying all medicine is bad. Yeah. But I think that I appreciate someone who is sober and maybe sober in thought of saying that I want to be the way God created me. And if I'm not okay the way God created me, Maybe there needs to be a conversation.
0: Yeah, I think that's a hard one. I mean, I remember, um, you know, especially when I had Grady and he had food allergies, you know, I would have a glass of wine every once in a while. I mean, I really hadn't wasn't I've never been a huge drinker in the last decade. Um, But in college, I mean, I drank all the time, I mean, especially after Afghanistan and, you know, I was drinking and drugging and everything, porn and everything else. Um, But then when I got married and had kids, you know, that all slowed down. Um, Well, the drugs and the other stuff slowed down a long time ago. But the alcohol, you know, I would drink every once in a while. And we had Grady and, you know, it was like he was having all these allergy issues and there was emergencies. And so I was just like, you know, I didn't really care about drinking. So I just didn't. Yeah. Um, And because I was like, well, if I have one glass of wine and then I have to run to the emergency room or have to do something, it's pointless. Like, I can't put all that on my wife. And it was my first time of realizing like, hmm. You know, like I do drink because I want to relax. Like I am using something else and it's not the Lord, right? It's not the peace of God. It's not the peace of my present moment. It's me saying I want to add to that. Now, Mm -hmm. again, I'm not saying that's terrible for people to do, but at least be honest about it. Yeah. Right? Because if you're not and you have hereditary issues, you have chemical issues, you have this kind of historical epigenetic code that makes you more susceptible to it. Yeah. Before you know it, you're using this thing that, just like anything else is, is normal, healthy coping, pot, alcohol, it spirals out of control before you know it.
1: Yeah, because I, I, like, I like even people who don't consider them addicts, self-addicts, to look at the quantity and the frequency. hmm And that should be alarming. I'll, I'll never <laughs> forget. My dad told a story that yeah. uh, one of our family members, it was revealed he was an alcoholic, and my dad came home and told my mom, I'm not going to have a beer for six months because I've realized I have a beer every night when I get home. Mm-hmm. And I think it scared him. I think it really sobered him to think, have I relied on alcohol? And, I, you know, I, I sometimes talk to my clients about maybe the behavioral effects of a predicted outcome, right? So you, you'll hear smokers say that. I'm going to go smoke to calm down, which is great comedy because I'm going to inhale a nicot- nicotine, a stimulant that's proven to raise both blood pressure and heart rate. But I'm going to call it calming down because it's going to curb my nicotine withdrawals. Mm -hmm. And so I I like to break down what is a smoke break, right? We're going to go outside. We're going to take a break from work. We're going to talk about our family and our kids. We're going to laugh with coworkers. Like all these four things are relaxing. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to inhale and stimulant.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. And so I remember
1: working in a phone company when I first came out of college and because I wasn't a smoker, they wouldn't allow me to take a smoke break. And so I declare to them, I've become a smoker and I would go sit out there and not smoke just so I could relax and laugh and have personal time with these coworkers that you're with eight hours a day. Mm -hmm. Was I relaxed at the end of my smoke break? Of course. Yeah. But I think that's maybe that's the coping or that's the grounding things that we definitely want healthy people doing of if they're, introverted they need to find what what are those introverted things that they can do or what's what's in me that needs to come out of me is what I try to tell my clients
0: so yeah i mean i think people are looking like you said people are looking for connection you know that connection helps you know addiction so much and we substitute it for yep. alcohol or drugs or weed and and again you know people can do whatever they want to but i think the thing that we try to do as counselors is get people to ask why it is they do what they do mm-hmm. you know when people just say oh i just smoke pot and it's not a problem and it grows from the ground and it's not addictive and they never get into the like nuance of when I do it why I do it the frequency you know the duration all those things you talked about then there's never really accountability it's yep. just me getting to do what I want without any question
1: yeah because what I would say is if you go camping without it and you go camping with it are those trips the same mm-hmm. and I feel like there is a borderline line cross somewhere where they're like well it's always better with it. And and to me, I think that's the beginning of dependence.
0: And that just, as a recovering addict, that scares me. Yeah. No, I think you have a, you know, a unique view on that because, you know, uh, and even in the Christian world, there's the question about drinking and whether you should and you shouldn't and whether it's biblical or it isn't. And, and again, I think people just need to be honest and ask the question of why are they doing it when they do it? And like you just said, can I... Have I had a long period of time without it? Is it periodic? Is it every once in a while? Is it to make this take you know the steak better? Is it really because I want to escape my wife and my kids and I don't want to feel this right. anxiety that I have? Right. You know I'm so stressed out with work that I come home and I'm like, I'm just going to drink two beers. It's no big deal That's not addiction. Yep. that's not really the problem is what we're saying though. The problem is is that missing link between why what are you not working on? the fear, the anxiety, the the shame? that you get to escape from when you go drink those two beers. Yeah. No, you might not be an addict, Yeah, but you're using coping, and could you replace that with something else? And if you don't, will that lead to addiction right. or that lead to long-term problems? Or a healthier
1: uh, addiction to something that has longer-lasting results. Because right. my wife will often joke that I need to go exercise, which is a nice way of her saying, you know, you're being an idiot, you're being mean. Right. Which is true. I mean, I, I think we all get to, an, to the end of ourselves, or we get fed up, or... We've absorbed as much as we can absorb, mm-hmm. and that's why I will always love exercise because it
0: changes me. Oh yeah, Jason, like, did you go to jujitsu today? I'm like, yes. <laughs> you know, I don't appreciate that any <laughs> question, <laughs> yeah. but that's the reality. You know, it's like it, if you go weeks and weeks, exercise, we, we, we give that prescription so to speak, mm-hmm. not because it's just good to exercise because you're aesthetically going to look better, yep. but because of the chemicals it releases and the you know the energy that it gets out. And if you don't do that, you're going to replace it with something.
1: Yeah. And, and, and so, of course, as we recommend exercise, I recommend what is their religious habit? What is their mm-hmm. connection to uh, the God they believe in? And I think that's, in my opinion, how God heals from the inside out. And so that's why, in my opinion, anything that heals from the outside in is guaranteed to not work or have long lasting effects. Because mm-hmm. God would never, in my opinion, allow anything to compete with what only he can do. And so I would argue if my connection with my God is good and my exercise is what it should be, I'm as happy and as peaceful as possible this side of heaven.
0: Mm -hmm. That's good. Um, What are some other myths? What are some other things that you kind of have seen, experienced um, from family members? You know, what are some things that If you're an addict listening to it and we're trying to avoid shame and we're trying to help people understand that, you know, it's not just a choice. Although people do make choices to get there, that the the chemical part's not a choice. I think part of the addiction community
1: wants to be accepted. And so something I've had to learn through my years is that years of being an addict is when I would go to a bar, there would be an anxiety of people who were drinking when they knew I was an addict, Mm -hmm. which, if I'm honest, has led to me not sharing that I'm an addict. Because they're not comfortable having a beer in front of me. Yeah. And so I think a lot of addicts, I hear this pretty common, are frustrated. Like, man, the fact that we're even talking about this makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. And so that's one of my hacks. I would Every time I go inside a bar, I go to the the bartender and get a Sprite in the same red Solo cup that every beer is served in that bar.
0: Yeah, just to avoid the conversation. No one talks. No one asks
1: me any questions. (laughs) Because there's this assumption, oh, you're not drinking. Oh, you're one of those people who doesn't drink. I just don't even want to have the conversation and that's why it's it's not that i'm embarrassed that i'm an addict i just don't i don't enjoy the continual conversation of you know there's another thing a test tube shots are you okay i'm fine in fact the less we talk about it the better (laughs) i am
0: (laughs) well i think i think that's funny that you mentioned that because you know with with food and alcohol those are the two things where you really you really see how dysfunctional it is our community if like Uh, two examples. One is if you go somewhere like I do a lot and it's a social environment and there's people there and I don't drink, people will get super uncomfortable. Like the people who are drinking, you know, it's like, well, why aren't you drinking? And are you an alcoholic? Do you struggle with this? Like, you know, it's like all this stuff. And it's like, no, I just don't drink in public. Like, or I don't drink in this situation or I don't need to explain to you why I'm not drinking. Well, but like people feel bad about it. You know, they Mm -hmm. feel judged when you don't drink and then they make it, this messy thing. So that lets me know that like, it's a problem because if you were comfortable and you know, you're only having one drink and you know, you're healthy and that it's not a coping mechanism. Why do you care why somebody is or isn't drinking? Does that make sense? I agree. So it's the same thing with food. Like when JC and I would, you know, with Grady, when we go to birthday parties Mm -hmm. and he can't eat the cupcake or he can't have the thing, like it's so crazy how people respond to us packing a Tupperware of hot dogs, you know, when they're giving out pizza or us having this special, you know, cupcake. You know, for Grady and everybody always makes comments about it. And it's not because we're trying to be these healthy freaks. It's because our kid will die if we feed him whatever you're feeding him. Yeah. But that's not what they don't. You know, they read into it as oh, we bought these nasty cupcakes, or you are trying to be healthy <laughs> and we're not, or right. you know, you don't want to eat the pizza, so you brought your kid a hot dog. And it's like, no, like we actually can. I would love to be able to give him a piece of pizza. Yeah. But it tells you how much we have around food addiction and <clears throat> coping with food on holidays or at yeah. events or.
1: And I think it's just, it's just something I think that's where judgmental behavior begins. I think is when I believe the God I love has given me a diet of things I can and can't eat mm-hmm. of things I should and shouldn't be doing. And so I think that's part of, I, I'm not going to judge someone who has a glass of wine if I'm really honest, I'm kind of jealous that, you know, like <laughs> yeah. I can't, because my parents it's are like
0: smelling really hard.
1: Yeah. Well, my parents are wine connoisseurs and I, I would have loved to be in an adult and have a glass of wine with my father. I don't know why that is something I can't do that just bothers me, yeah. you know, but it's kind of the residue of it's connection.
0: my addiction. Yeah. you know, it feels like there's a barrier to you fully being able to experience life in a way, yep. which is a lie, but also like there are some truths that we miss out on in life. Yeah. Yeah, I was behind somebody the other day uh, in the drive-through, and it was it was a car, and they were all there was like four people, and they were all smoking pot, and it was so strong. And I got up to the window, and I was like, "Man, we all got a contact high from that," and the <laughs> girls are <were> dying laughing. <laughs> but you know, like it, it yeah, we we like because I don't smoke pot, and you know, but sometimes I'm like, man, it would be nice you know to to just hit something and relax and just step away and like sit out on the back porch and look at the stars and and I have I know what that feels like in the past mm. um but like you said there that's something I'm not gonna bring into my life and I'm not gonna do, yeah right or wrong, legal or not, like even if it was made legal, I'm not gonna do it, and it's coming i mean i, oh, I don't
1: yeah I don't know if I mean the gummies uh c b d oil i mean I think there is a a wave of uh lower and more how do I say this more Uh, accessible Uh like because when you say smoke most of us know okay obviously if you're putting carbon monoxide in your lungs you're probably gonna get cancer eventually I think most of us who are educated and know medical science know that and so that's where the gummy is like oh it's harmless Mm -hmm. you know I'm I'm a happier me and once again no judgment and that's where I want people to measure their own faith follow their own convictions because i find people are defensive when
0: they feel conviction oh for sure but but, i mean whatever the behavior is right smoking pot it could be exercise i mean i see people all the time who like you said exercise six seven times a day they're there for two hours and their kids are at home yeah you know like i mean um if you grow up in a house where exercise is the primary focus for everybody and they're in the gym doing crossfit two hours every morning and you're coming out as a kid and you're like hey and they're like well let me finish my workout I mean, that becomes problematic. Yep. And, and just because it's healthy on the surface doesn't mean your emotional health and the reasons why you're doing it are good. Yep. And that's, I think what we're talking about is, I mean, obviously you can't smoke crack cocaine and have a justification that it's good for your body or good for anything. But I think when you start getting into pot or exercise or golf or work or whatever, those are addictions too, right? I mean, Absolutely. we, you know, we're trained to see sats and in the international Institute of addiction and trauma professionals and. You know, the CMAT, it, you know, it covers those things like Gant, like money addiction, uh, exercise addiction, work addiction, you know, substance, all, sex, all that stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, people, I think there's, I guess I'd ask you the question. I mean, do you think everybody's addicted to something? No. I mean, my wife's a
1: great example. I, I, I'm envious of her sometimes because she just, her, her ability to control herself is so high that... I don't know if she has it in her genetics to be addicted to anything. Yeah. Because if she were to get drunk tonight, she'd be irritated, you know? (laughs) Or I would love it, you know? Because I, you know, and I think that's part of addiction is I feel chaos. So when I get drunk, when I get high, I feel like it's the first time that everything, or for her, she already feels a sense of control. Mm -hmm. So to her, to lose that sense of control is idiotic. And And she can't even relate. And that's why she's like, why do you... You know why are you so obsessed with
0: these things? you yeah. know, but I think she's a a diamond in the rough, right I mean like most people aren't like that I, I would I would argue that you're right i mean i
1: I would say in my life, I would say half the people fall under that healthy controlled uh or they're averted i mean maybe that's a abuse response to their parents of addiction mm-hmm. or but yeah, I don't know, addicted. I, guess, I think, once again, that becomes a word. No, that's good. That's why I brought it up. Yeah, because yeah. it's like, I, I want to use Whitney's word to say triggered, right? Yeah. Of, of like that's, that's such a strong title to put on someone that says, I watch Good Morning America every morning, you know? Because mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if the withdrawal, if the grief, you know? Because that may be another myth we haven't talked about, is that I think the parents, the family of a- addicts don't understand the grief that goes through when someone is coming out of a binge, a period of time, I mean, when I was in recovery, early in recovery, they talked about writing letters to alcohol, writing letters to marijuana of goodbye.
2: Mm-hmm. And these
1: people are bawling. Oh, yeah. Because I'm I'm saying that I'll never be that happy again. I'll never be that elated or that free of what's bad at me. Now, of course, we know recovery, you can walk out of that. You can heal out of that. And that's mm-hmm. why... My worst day today is better than my best day, uh, addicted on anything.
0: Yeah, I think people don't know what, they're, what addicts are giving up. Yeah. You know, they're giving up a comfort blanket that they've had for their entire life, comforting them from the pain they've been through, from the fear they have, from the anxiety, from the abuse, from the neglect, from whatever is going on that started it. Yep. So paint that picture a little bit. What's, you know, what do you think the typical, what, what, what causes addiction other than just biology? To me, what causes addiction is I think they
1: have fallen in love with something they deem as their savior. Mm-hmm. They deem as something they would rather do than anything else.
0: And what's it saving them from?
1: Whatever's bad. Whatever is bad in them, what's bad around them, whatever they want to conquer financially, uh, I think that's par- part of the compulsion, the drive that just is relentless with most addicts. Because mm-hmm. I find there is a rapid thought hyperactivity something uh, is driving some of these addicts. And that, that's where they yearn for a substance. Because, I mean, look, look at what we call God, right? He's a power greater than me. He is a force that is the only thing I've ever studied that's successfully given me peace. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, this is off topic. It's on topic, but not what I planned. But, you know, it reminds me of just cell phone addiction. You know, the new the new need to be on social media, the new need to be, um, you know, glued to your phone and how it is a power greater than what we can do. You know, I don't, I don't know if you've seen social, exp- uh, I did. Yeah. Social dilemma. But like, you know, it's, it's this computer system that's, you know, bigger than our caveman brain can handle with all these algorithms and all this, you know, continual dopamine stimulus hit to buy this and do this and use this. And it's all shaped to, you know, trick you into thinking you need stuff. And, you know, just that swipe, I mean, all the research is showing just how chemically, you know, it's not like doing drugs and alcohol or sex, but it's so addicted.
1: Yep. And I think it's the fascination of comparison. And that's what I think social media allows people to do is they compare the highlight reel of a fake and phony family. And they compare it to their behind-the-scenes mm-hmm. of the fight he just had with his wife this morning.
0: Right, and it's still escapism, like you're saying. It's still That's, it. that's the new substance. It's, it. it's somebody else's life that mm-hmm. I can compare. It's some other news network that validates what I'm saying. It's, it's something that gets me away from my wife in the kitchen who's trying to talk to me about what we're going to eat for dinner, yep. my kids who want me to come play in this you know, the living room the job, the emails that are, you know, building up and piling up. So I'll just go in here and swipe and, and look, and I'm not hurting anybody. You know, I'm just looking at pictures. I'm just communicating it socially. Like I'm just talking to my friends, whatever. Yeah. But the reality is it's escapism too.
1: Yeah. And I, I I challenge my clients to kind of look at their social media and if their social media is bad, I blame them Mm -hmm. because you pick those friends. Right. So I I think that's what a purge, I think, is healthy for all of us once a month to look at these people I'm connected to and say, are they an addition to my life or are they subtraction?
0: Yeah. Unfollow.
1: Unfollow. Are you kidding? Unfriend. I mean, have the courage to protect what's going inside of you Mm -hmm. because that's that's what dieting is all about of saying, I'm going to be very careful what negativity comes in because we all need correction and I don't think we should ever shy away from that. But there is a point where correction becomes abuse, and it's not correction at all. Mm-hmm. It's just depressing. Yeah. That's or good. I'm just buying what these people are successfully selling. Because, I mean, how many real estate agents have friend requested me, and I'm just like,
0: no, I'm good. I like my house. <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> the worst is when somebody that you know that you haven't seen in a long time messages you and, like, hey, how you doing? You know, kids look great. Blah blah blah. And you're like, oh man, that's so sweet that you would check out. You know, great, I'm doing good. You know, they're there. Oh yeah, yeah. This is what's going on in my family. Hey, we're gonna do this launch for these books. Would you like to? You know, I'm yep. like, oh man. Here we go. Like I thought you actually cared about me and mm-hmm. you had an agenda the entire time.
1: Yeah.
0: And I get it. You know, I'm not hating on pyramid schemes or whatever, but you know, I know it's people's livelihood and people are doing it, but that's part of the I think negative of social media is like if you're going to do that, at least do it with people that you're in relationship with, yeah. you know, that, that love you and support you it will, you know, so when you're having that conversation, it's not the first time you've talked to them in 10,000 years. Um, okay, let's down addiction. Um, what are some ways that you think, um, addiction impacts the family? You know, if there's a family member out there listening and they're, they're kind of struggling, I know Al-Anon is something for, yes. So what should people do about that? How, how does it affect the family? Well,
1: I think being an addict myself, I, I think me and my wife are constantly having conversations of what am I too much of and what am I too little of. Because she makes fun, often teases me, makes fun of me that I'm, I, I smother her or I, I starve her. Mm. There's just two versions of me. And that's just not me at my best. And so me at my best, I think, is... Uh, gas and brake, right? I'm. I've got to push myself sometimes to engage and connect with my family. Put the phone down. Play football with my boys. Or there's times that I need to. I'm too much. I'm too harsh. I'm too quick to jump. Too quick to temper. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's. I think part of healthy recovery is saying that I want to always be gauging, controlling myself. And always looking at, am I too engaged? Am-, am I enjoying this too much?" Or and something my wife we, 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 my boys were probably three and five, and I bought my first Xbox, and she says, "Oh no. Oh you know, and, and I love her, she's very truthful. <laughs> but she knows me, because here it comes. Oh, Yeah, right, for sure. And so I, I made her an agreement then, and I said, "Listen, uh, if the boys are asleep, if the boys are awake, the Xbox can't be turned on." And she was like, okay, deal. I like this." And so 8 o'clock, 8.30 at night, you know, I, I put her to bed, I put them to bed, and I'm allowed to be as selfish as I want to be because my sobriety date didn't change. I didn't talk to anybody on that. I just got on a game and shot some people, and it was fun. <laughs> now, my five-year-old gets up, and he's like, you know, I hear violence. I hear gunfire. I'm mm-hmm. like, you know, Daddy's saving the world. Go back to bed, you know. Right. But it was fun because if I stayed up till 11, if I stayed up till 12, I really wasn't harming anyone Mm -hmm. and it didn't cost us money. It was just an agreed upon pleasure that wasn't against her. Mm -hmm. And then of course, as my boys are now 12 and 14, so now they have their own games and they both celebrated the days they got to beat me at so-and-so game or, and I, I guess that's where I'm looking at engagement of, okay, what are we into? What are we doing? And I guess that's what I want any person recovery thinking through is, I'm. I'm not a liker. I'm a lover.
0: So I'm either you know, a hundred or I'm zero. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good thing. When we talked about a little th- last week, is you know, as an addict and with the family members, you know, trying to figure out through addiction as you're recovering, what's best for us. Yes. You know, making decisions, what's best for our family. And if that's for you to get a break or for you to be engaged or for you to play the game, if we decided that together, then I'm not resentful when you're in there playing. That's it. Right? I'm not coming in and being like, you stayed up till 11 playing Mario Brothers. You know, like, I can't believe it, blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh, no, we decided this and you're a grown man and you showed me through your way of talking about it and establishing the rules and the boundaries that you're doing that in the recovery model.
1: Yeah. Because, I mean, I think a, a, a cue of addiction is that is is my wife jealous of something in my life? Mm-hmm. That maybe is a question I would want men to ask themselves. Because I think women have such an innate ability to sense prioritization. Mm-hmm. And if I love Xbox more than I love my wife, we are in trouble. Yeah. And if I love hunting, if I love whatever the thing is more than I love my wife, we have issues. And I guess that's one of my priority conversations I want to have with my wife is... I don't want to tell her I'm a great husband. I want her to tell me, I'm happy with your priority list. Yeah, that's I'm great. happy with your calendar. I'm happy with your wallet of what you're proving through behavior is important to you.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the markers of addiction, right, is not being able to give it up despite the consequences. There it is. And so, you know, if you're, the consequences, is my wife is upset with me and we have no intimacy and no connection because I keep hunting or I keep working or I keep fishing or I keep doing jujitsu or whatever the thing is that I'm doing. I love it more than I love my connection with my wife. It's become an idol, like you said in the beginning. It's become this thing that I have now elevated above the normal things of life, which again leads to the addiction is that normalcy, calmness, peace is not enough. Mm. You know, I need to add something else in there and get things stirred up. And it's got to be exciting. It's got to be thrilling. It's got to be with, you know, moving me away from normal and into, you know, I was talking to my therapist about this the other day and we were talking about parenting and, you know, I know you have older kids and, you know, I was telling her, man, I remember I remember having Grady and just throwing myself into being a father, you know, just so excited to have this experience that I didn't have when I was a kid and to be able to heal and be such a good dad and always be there and always be engaged and I had this expectation and looking back, it was like, it was almost this kind of euphoria addiction of, yes, it had. I had good intentions with it, but like I was putting way too much of myself into it. And so the other day I realized like, I love my kids. I enjoy coming home to them. But you know, some days I come home, I'm tired. I'm like, I do not want to go jump on the trampoline again for the 50th time. Yeah. And she's like, that's okay. And I realized like, I've gotten used to having kids now. You know, I've had kids for six years and now I've had two. And so it's become normal, but there's beauty in the normality, right? There's beauty in just the simple walking to the door, they're playing, I'm saying hey to JC, we're catching up on the day. It doesn't always have to be, you know, daddy making a big show and making everything a fun game. And every day of their life is me giving them attention and making it amazing. Yeah. And and I just, you know, through my own work, I realized like, man, I do. I put that expectation on myself because of a deeper issue that I need to work out, which is just being okay with normalcy. And if it's normal, that doesn't mean something's wrong.
1: Yeah. And I remember those years. I mean, I, I think that was one of my goals as a dad is to say no as little as possible when it came to throw the football with yeah. me, spend time with me. I like banning that word because it helped me to fight the laziness mm-hmm. and the selfishness that I think every father, if he's honest, has to battle.
0: Yeah, for sure. And
1: we're, I mean, we're in a phase of life now where my oldest is a, in the band at Cap Shreve. And so we have watched every Captain Tree football game this year. Mm-hmm. So I'm taking my wife by ourselves to a football game, <laughs> sitting by ourselves. I mean, it's a date. Yeah. And we're laughing and buying concessions, and it's we're required to have a every Friday night date now to go mm-hmm. watch my son play drums. And I, I told my wife after the second or third gate, game, I was like, this is, this is a great stage of life. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously I do love my boys, and they're very affectionate. I, I think that's something that was very important for me as a man to teach them affection. Uh, but what is happening is our, is our time together is reducing naturally. As they're becoming more independent, as they're becoming more rebellious and naturally wanting to be their own king, they're firing me as their king, right? And so I think that's been a great transition and helpful for me to say, okay, how do I, where do I meet them? What is normal connection? And I think that as an addict, I still am always gonna be having that daily conversation of, Am I too much? Am I too little? One of the analogies I use with my clients is uh, when I fill up my car, I should say when I used to fill up my car with gasoline, (laughs) electric car (laughs) plug. Yeah, that's right. Tesla plug. uh, Is that you, uh, there is a pop. Speaking of (laughs) technology. (laughs) (laughs) There's a pop that happens when you fill up a tank. And I think that there is a satisfaction. You know you're done at the gas station when the gas tank popped. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I want my wife, I want to hug her, talk to her, and then sense when she's like, hey, I'm going to bed. Pop. Mm-hmm. And then I go hug my boys and they're like, dad, I can't breathe. And I'm like, okay, pop. You know. Mm-hmm. And my other son, I'm like, come here. And the dogs are relentless. They never.
0: You know. yeah. There's no popping with a dog.
1: <laughs> but I, I, I just, I like that sensation to say, it's my job to, to, to love, to reach out daily, and that I need to be proud of what I'm doing. It's good. Even if it's not epic, even if it's not a moment where the soundtrack rises and the doves kiss. Yeah, yeah. It's just daily <laughs> grind of, you know, I don't, I don't switch the washer to the dryer and, and expect my wife to give me a bear hug and say, you're the sweetest thing under the sun, you know? Like, right.
0: Yesterday, she came, my, Jay-Z came in she was like, your clothes are in the hamper you know not beside the hamper but in the right dead center i was like i know i'm working on it <laughs> but yeah we all have those things i think especially with little little kids man it it is not it's like the dogs they're they're insatiable, insatiable. you know you can't kiss them or hug them or give them enough attention or look at enough puzzles they that, right. you know, they're like come here come here that's it i was telling somebody the client this morning you know my my son my oldest will be like, daddy, come here. Daddy, come see this. Daddy, come look at this. Daddy, come here. I'm like, dude, I'm cooking you dinner right now. Like currently I cannot put this down and like, give me two seconds. I love you. I'll be there in a second. I go in there and he's like, blah, you know, and I'm like, is this what you wanted me to come in here for? And that's it. He yeah. just wanted to do a stupid face yep. and move on with whatever he's doing. But yeah, it's just that. And, and again, I think to kind of circle back to addiction, people didn't you know necessarily get that right they're longing for that connection and that Mm. attachment and that attunement and to be seen and then over the years when those things don't happen or severe trauma happens big t little t then yeah they need to replace serotonin with something serotonin being that thing that connects you and gives you that long that pop like you said that thing that goes okay i've arrived i've i've connected enough to where i don't need to keep sustaining it yeah but dopamine right it's never ending never ending it's it's an instant hit an instant high it takes you to a hundred but then as soon as you step away from it, you need it again. Yep. It, it never pops, right? That's, mm-hmm. do- I guess that's a good analogy. Dogs are dopamine, right? Like they just need you, need you, need you, want you, love you here, here, here's, you know, can't pet me enough. Right. Um, but our, our spouses and our kids and especially older kids are, are more of that serotonin. It's like, no, you've hugged me enough times. You've, you've seen me enough times I'm going to bed or I'm going to go over here and do my thing. And, and we need more of that in life. But, We just love instant gratification so much, especially those of us who struggle with any kind of addiction.
1: Yep. And with the world becoming more instant, I think our patience is waning and being less required. And I think that's maturity to say it's not rejection when my wife says, I'm ready to go to bed. It's Mm -hmm. not rejection when my son says... You know, like my, my like my son said, "Are you really about to walk with me?" He was so embarrassed I was going to walk with him from the field <laughs> to the high school, and I'm like, "As many times as you've embarrassed me, like this would be a great time to pay him back." Yep. But I didn't. I just said, "Well, I'll be 50 feet behind you."
2: Yeah.
1: But he was terrified I was going to get in trouble or or, or get arrested because I was in the high school at nine o'clock at night. Oh 9:00. yeah. And I'm like, "We're good. I'm walking with other coaches. We're yeah, good. Yeah. That's so. No funny. No one's going to hurt me. I promise you, buddy. That's so funny.
0: <laughs> All right. So what are um. While well, we got time, let's the difference. Let's move. So we talked about kind of substance abuse, um, drugs and alcohol a lot. What do you What do you think the difference is between those things, like chemical dependencies, and let's say food and sex? It's
1: remarkably different, because I, you know, God has been so good to me and given me tools and the ability to be healed, and He is successfully healing me, present tense. I, I don't know if he, He's healed me because I, I don't know if that means that would, would connotate it's over, but. I think the difference is, with my recovery, I've abstinence has been the only solution.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I, I can't imagine, like food and sex, someone coming to me and saying, okay, Ross, you can have one beer every Sunday night, but you can't have any other beers. I, I think that would be torture for me as an alcoholic. Mm. And that's where food and sex right, is about portions, whether they undereat or overeat, or whether it's sex, is that I'm going to have healthy sex with my wife, but no other sex Mm -hmm. when most addicts I know are the most tempted after they have sex with their wife because there's the, there's the dopamine. There's the, there is insatiable. Gosh, that was great. We should do that 16 more times. Yeah. And she's like, Oh my gosh, like (laughs) am I ever going to be enough? And I, I think that's where the, and I'll say this in, in, in my career, I spent, what, 11 years in chemical addiction and probably a year and a half, two years in sex addiction. The shame associated with sex addiction is remarkable
2: mm-hmm.
1: because for someone to come to a group and admit they got drunk, it, it was kind of a strike. It was kind of like, yeah, you know, guys, I fell off the wagon. Everybody's like, oh, man, get back on. You can do it. Don't be depressed.
0: Yeah, or the opposite, where you come to church or you come to a group and you say, hey, guys, I haven't masturbated or I haven't looked at porn in, in 10 days. And people are like, mm. But if you're an alcoholic and you come yes. and you say, hey, I haven't drank in 10 days, people are like, yeah, good job, bud. Like, great job. You can do it. But that's the opposite effect when you come yeah. in and talk about sex addiction. Because I feel
1: like what happens is you bump into mothers who have their own sexual trauma and they're hide your kids, hide your wife. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a sex addict. You know, we're not going to let you around uh, our precious, innocent children. Because now you're a monster. And yeah. It just is so terrible how society hasn't... Because I think society has done great evolving for alcoholics. And I mean, that's why Alcoholics Anonymous was so uh, such a big deal, as they were so afraid of their reputation being scarred. I don't hear that nowadays. I don't hear people saying, I don't want... You know, I found out my, my doctor's an alcoholic and I quit seeing him. People don't say that anymore. Yeah, that's They're true. like, I respect him. I mean, he's sober now. That's awesome. Yeah,
0: he's going to A. He's working yeah. on it. That's great. But yeah. he's been sober two months from sex addiction. Oh, man. Right. He needs to not pastor. He needs to step down. He can't come around our family. He can't lead. He can't be a therapist. Yep. Yeah, I remember a conversation we had a long time ago. um, when I was at Samaritan and I'd maybe I'd come over for a visit or something after I got the CSAT thing. And we were talking about that. Like if a guy watches porn or has watched porn as a pastor in the last month, should he step down? And I think you were a little bit more rigid, yeah. you know, then than you would be now just from the understanding. So that, that's kind of the question. What, what have you learned in, you know, maybe what's being a therapist because the reality is, is that, you know, there's only our building, right? And there's like five or six of us now that are CSATs here but in 500 square miles of Shreveport, there's nobody else who's a CSAT. Right. And so I think people think they understand what sex addiction is, and they try to use the same kind of model that you would, you know, AA, I mean, not AA, but uh, Alcoholics Anonymous or anything like that. Um, what's the difference to you now after getting the CSAT and after kind of seeing clients and leading groups? and? I, I find that sobriety is
1: so much more difficult in the sex addiction community because it, it is the access is, you can't compare. I mean, let's talk about the effort. It would take a drug addict or an alcoholic to go buy the alcohol, to mm-hmm. consume it in the parking lot. I mean, this is 30 minutes, 45 minutes of effort and expense when who doesn't own a smartphone? Yeah. I mean, you're, you're a half a second from stupidity.
0: And even if anyone. you're not looking for it, you're getting oh sent it all day long. Because they're sending you
1: an ad with a girl with no bra on. They mm-hmm. know exactly what they're doing. Yep. And so I think that's what's led to is, is is probably a different set of rules of understanding that it's going to take a sex addict a month, three months, sometimes even six months before they can even put 10 days together. Yeah. Because they've got to figure out where is the house leaking and how do I successfully patch all those leaks so that the next rainstorm, the house doesn't leak. Mm-hmm. And they're proud, but finding what those triggers are, finding the support, because... Uh, uh, I, I host uh, two sex addiction groups a week and we have developed a group me out of my two groups that I think is doing more work than I'm doing in my group
0: oh yeah man we have a you know, I do the other one and the guys. some of the guys who have kind of graduated or aren't coming to the group they meet on Fridays awesome. by themselves without anybody you know and some of the guys who come to the group go to that group and yeah I think like you said like I think that that connection and that community of guys being able to come and talk about you know what they're struggling with I mean, that's so powerful because mm-hmm. it's so different than coming in saying, Hey, I got drunk last week. Yeah. You're coming in and describing the way you act out sexually. Sex is such a private thing. Yep. And within the church and within culture, well, not, you know, that's the insane thing about it is it's this thing that's so private that within our own lives, we don't know how to talk about it. There's so much trauma. There's so much history. There's such a lack of education and yet it's everywhere. You know, everywhere you drive is a poster or a billboard or a, advertisement everywhere you pull on your phone is some sexually provocative thing to sell some item Yep. you know whether it's Hall- the halloween store or whether it's you know sam's town casino you know whether it's a facebook ad for a necklace yep. there's some provocative thing and it's just not the same same with anything else and
1: i feel like the line is moving of what is obscene Oh, for sure. Because in the 80s, when I was a child, to see a couple kissing, you know, coming from, you know, I Love Lucy, they slept, slept in separate, separate beds. Mm-hmm. So it just, it, it is shocking to see the, the line they're pushing, the amount, and the length of these scenes, and what they're showing in these scenes is, is shocking. And yeah, I, think I mean,
0: it's, you can show everything but penetration on television at 7 o'clock
1: mm-hmm. now yeah
0: that's like the rule it's the same Mm -hmm. thing with pg-13 like pg-13 movies what they could show in a pg-13 movie 10 years ago 15 years ago 20 years ago they've added so many more things um and yet we think it's the same like somebody sees pg-13 you're like oh 13 year olds can see that Mm. and you have to remember like well who's deciding what 13 year olds can see yeah future sex addicts yeah (laughs) yeah right (laughs) yeah it's crazy because we're going to numb it
1: down and say, it's not that big of a deal.
0: Yeah, so tell me about that. What do you think, you know, as our culture moves forward? Because I think there would be a whole group of people who would say, well, that, that's sex negative. Like, people should be free to express themselves and, you know, do BDSM or do anything they want to. And that should be perfectly fine. Or they should be able to have a sex as much as they want to. Sex isn't bad. And I, I, I'm not here saying that sex is
1: bad. I think sex was designed to be private. Mm-hmm. And I think the, pub, the publicity of it is, is what's shocking for all of us. Because I think we were all born with a sense of shame. Mm-hmm. We don't teach kids to cover up. Modesty is not taught. Right. Yes, you have stories of kids running around or skinny dipping. Or, but that's what made it exhilarating as a kid. Mm-hmm. Because you everyone felt the embarrassment. Everyone felt the shame.
0: And so I... I well, I think especially in this culture, right? It, oh, yeah. I mean, if you're in the fields of Africa and everyone's nude from day one... I still think sex is probably private, right? I doubt that it's as open as we make it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, because I had friends who went to Africa, and the the comment was said, uh, you're going to wear a top for us, and you're going to wear a dress for them. Because to them, the exposed knee was equivalent to a woman being topless in America. Wow. But that was their culture, and so I Mm -hmm. think that...
0: So those Moors are still there. there They're just focused on something different. Different parts. Yeah. Yeah,
1: different culture. And I guess that's what I want to teach my boys is that what is appropriate, what is funny, what, what, is, what should be said, what is things that we need to, where's that line?
0: Of. Yeah, I think that's more important, right, is having those conversations with our kids and explaining that the body parts are good and that all parts are made by God and that these things are you know, what God's giving us. But then here's some context for when they're appropriate and when they're not. Yeah. And I would say most of the sex addicts we see um, didn't get that when they grew up they didn't get that in their childhood right. they weren't taught that and so their first, first experience sexually was something that was completely out of context that they weren't ready for and that gave them that huge dopamine hit that you know drugs and alcohol do
1: yeah and I think it, it, it also ties into their marriage because if there's an arousal response with a conviction they will associate the pair and they'll find boredom in their marriage because it doesn't have the conviction mm and I think that's, to me, part of recovery. I think part of teaching purity is maybe saying, this is where this belongs, because I think fireworks are great. But if it's 10 o'clock on a Sunday and it's not near any holiday, we all kind of know you shouldn't be blowing fireworks up. You know? <laughs> right. like, th- that doesn't mean we're anti-fireworks, though. We like fireworks. That's, we want you to have a good time. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that's, that's what I try to teach my boys, is that there are things that are good, appropriately when they're supposed to be. And I and I understand that it, it's it's hard nowadays not to offend some uh but I think that's where I I try to walk a line of morality and biblical that is not sometimes politically correct. And I, I guess I just I've got to be okay with that.
0: Yeah, that's good. Um yeah, I mean, I think you know, we talked about this before, like getting into sex addiction versus the other stuff and trying to figure out how to get it all in in one podcast. So, I mean, just looking at it, I know we need to do a whole separate podcast. This is just addiction, covering addiction in general, and we could dive into two hours of just sex addiction and kind of peeling that back. Um, what do you think? Um, one little thing about sex addiction I wanted to talk about. We, we kind of call it an intimacy disorder, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's the unique thing about it too, is is that sex addiction is not really about sex necessarily. And I think people see somebody who's struggling with sex addiction or pornography addiction, and they're like, oh, they're just this depraved, right. you know, lust-filled guy who every, every woman they look at, they're thinking inappropriate thoughts. And, and that's just not the case.
1: Yeah, to me, the, the intimate dis- intimacy disorder, I think, comes from that new is often taught is better than old. Mm-hmm. And I just love messages that remind me that God is the good old same. He he can't be improved. Mm-hmm. So I think my wife is someone that I choose to be content with. And there's not a new wife I'm looking for. Right. And I guess that's where the intimacy disorder is. It's easier to make new relationships than to cultivate old ones. That's facts. Yeah. Because old relationships require grace and mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation, which are very, very complicated things that are very difficult to genuinely do.
0: Oh yeah. And if you're doing that with a screen, then you don't have to put any effort in. Exactly. You know, and it seems harmless when it's harming me, Mm -hmm. which again speaks to the addiction of, I, you know, I don't like what's going on internally. I want to get away from me. There it is. You know, that this deep rooted issue. And, and that's what I try to tell people all the time. It's not about, I mean, it is about modifying your behavior, right? You don't want people to get drunk. You don't want people to do drugs. You don't want people to buy prostitutes or, you know, go to strip clubs or do whatever it is that they're doing. That's violating their own conscience. But more than that, we want people to to look and go. Why am I doing this? Like, what's mm-hmm. at the root of this? It's not because my wife's not having sex with me enough. It's not because you know I have a hard job. It's not because I like to drink and party. There's something underneath all of that yep. that's always been there that needs to be repaired before sobriety is going to be a thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think that it, it, there's the intimacy disorder right there. Is that if you're out of con- if you're out of connection with you. How are you going to have any connection with a woman, mm-hmm. with a child, with a parent? And I, it is shocking to hear the amount of mystery when you put a couple together. When you just point blank ask a man a question, and he's like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It, which can be frustrating of an answer in counseling because it can paralyze the session. And my question is always, well, when will you know? You know, like, do you not want to think about it? Do you know the answer and you don't want to share it? What What is... What does I don't know mean? Mm -hmm. Because there is just some resistance to painful things and painful thoughts and uh, revelation or conclusions that could have an impact on the marriage or the life. Or, but I think that's what I and that's where I go back to. I want to live a peaceful life. I want to be good with as many people as I can be good with. And I think that harmony is what probably the Garden of Eden felt like. You know, Mm -hmm. which is what I think heaven will be.
0: How do you think spouses should respond? One of the things I was thinking when we were talking was, you know, if for people listening and and wondering about addiction, you know, if you have a teenager, if you have an adult, and they keep acting out and they keep doing damage, but we're supposed to forgive them and love them. Like, how do you work with that within an addict as a, as a family member?
1: Well, I mean, if it's a child, I think that obviously the parent has the upper hand and can set up limits and hopefully... Uh, remove some things that are, are not going to help the kid to stay sober. Because, I mean, I think with Snapchat, and there's plenty of technology now designed to help kids break the law. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that is why these disappearing pictures were invented. That's why Snapchat is worth what it's worth. Uh, but when
0: it comes to an adult, I think that... And I'm in drugs, and I'm in mean, all the addictions. All too, of them. Yeah. yeah.
1: So I think that there's got to be a question of, uh, do they want to be sober? Do they want to stop? Because I think if an addict's honest, they occasionally want to stop. Mm-hmm. They occasionally want to quit looking at porn. Usually after they looked at it, right? Mm-hmm. And then for two days later, five days later, when they can't sleep, they're like, well, you know.
0: Not that bad. It's one not, more not that time. big of a deal. Yeah, it's, it's a victimless a crime, bit. right?
1: Yeah. And, and, and that's a lie. I'm not saying that it is a victimless crime. I'm just saying that's, that's where the small voice justifies, which is, I think, the small voice that says... Marijuana not a drug. I'm drug free, you mm-hmm. know, but I, I think that, that, that that's what I think is the beginning of death is there are death habits. And I think part of addiction is I'm not choosing things that give me life. I'm choosing things that give me death. I'm running from fires because, I mean, I think that's a kid response. When a kid sees a fire, they run. Mm-hmm. And, you know, object permanence, right? If I don't see it, there's peekaboo, right? If I don't see it, it doesn't exist. I don't see a fire. Right. So I've been running my whole life as an addict, Mm -hmm. where a grown man says, I'm willing to run into a fire. I'm willing to encounter some pain because there's something valuable in that fire that I'm willing to drag out.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think part of the problem too is that people, as we're talking about this podcast on this podcast, like I think people see teenagers who are using drugs as bad kids, like that they're just randomly using drugs because they just don't care. Right. Right. What do you have to say about that? Like- I,
1: I would say they're not bad kids; they're hurting kids. Mm-hmm. They have no solution, no coping, no. I mean, that that's that's my that's my story. Right. If I was in pain, and that's why I stood out among my friends, because my friends kept saying, "Man, chill, man." Like, "Whoa, you, you're way too into this. Like, take a break," you know. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, I'm not a quitter, you know. I'm I'm gonna go in full full blast, baby. You know, <laughs> we're gonna burn the house down.
0: Yeah.
1: But and I think that's a gift and a curse for most successful people, is they are they're driven they're ambitious and and i think anything you know with what's the saying any any gift without measurement is a is a curse because mm-hmm. it needs to be there's the restraint again is i need to be slowing down the car because it could have been a wonderful scenic drive until you were doing 80 miles an hour down the ocean highway what are you doing
0: right what, what are some responses that you would say are, are positive that parents can do if they have a kid who's struggling with addiction? Because a lot of it's uh, like nicotine addiction, cigarettes. Sure. What's the pen, uh, the vape pen Vapes, stuff, yeah. or um, the Juul? Yeah. You know, I see a lot of negative responses, a lot of shaming, a lot of, uh, you know, behavior modification. I'm going to ground you. I'm going to take your truck. I'm going to take this thing. I'm going to not let you go to these things, you know, um, and that doesn't seem to work very well. So what are some things that they could do? Um It'll be more helpful.
1: I think that to me joining, I mean, I think that's what Jesus was so good at is he sat with the woman at the well and said, I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to plea with you to make better decisions. I understand why you've done what you've done. Mm. And I think that's...
0: Well, that's the key right there is understanding. Understanding, yeah. that's
1: joining. And I think that that's to me what parents sometimes don't want to admit what they've done. And so when my kids found out I was a drug addict, they were floored, you know, like, you just scoffed like they've never seen me drink alcohol how could I be a drug addict mm-hmm. but I want to be human as their leader I don't want to be perfect as their leader I want to join them I want to understand them and I think that's where when you sit beside someone and you judge them you're looking down on them mm-hmm. you're, you're sympathizing not empathizing and I think that's what I think good parenting is is looking a kid in the face and saying listen I think you're smoking to fit in yeah, I think you're playing cool and using words you don't really use because you don't accept you and you want them to accept you.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you think parents have a hard time because they feel like they've created the problem?
1: Of course, yeah. I mean, I, I, I see d- several single mothers that feel that they need to compensate and buy their love or make up for an absent dad or make up for the addict they fell in love with and had a kid with. And But I think that good parenting, I, I think, is loving and joining and saying... I heard a story one time of a, 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 a man, is a boy and he was 18, 19 years old and he was into wearing trench coats and dark makeup and just hated everything there was about God. And so this, man, this uncle took this boy in and the, you know, the kid comes in and he's like, okay, please, no Bible studies. And he's like, no, 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 do you like motorcycles? And the kid's like, yes. And he goes, we want you to come ride motorcycles with us. And so that's all they did. They just laughed, told stories, rode motorcycles. They start, eventually started camping together. And six months later, not a shocker, kid cut his hair, quit wearing dark makeup. Because it's, it's interesting to me that people want to influence things they don't connect with.
0: Mm, that's good. That'll preach right there.
1: And so, like, what's the saying? Rules without relationship always equals rebellion.
0: Yeah. And so a king... We that, talked about this a long time ago yes. your kids, yeah.
1: Because to me, a king in the castle doesn't have authority. Mm-hmm. So I think part of me being a dad is to say, I'm this is my house, this is my my castle and and I know you wanna fire me. I, I get it. But this is still my castle. I love you. I wanna know you. But there's still things we're not gonna agree on.
0: I think people have such a hard time, you know, getting caught up in their own feelings about feeling disrespected or disobeyed. Yeah. And then they get angry and they try to control and they try to fix out of fear. And I get it. I mean, I'm a parent. We don't want our kids to suffer. If we catch our kid looking at porn or smoking pot or selling drugs or trading drugs or doing whatever, we kind of freak out, you know? Yeah. But you're right. I mean, I think the best thing to do for parents to do is connect, you know? And from a neurological perspective, you know, that, that's going to de escalate the kid who's a really emotional and really afraid, already kind of has preset that they're going to feel shame, already probably is feeling shame. Yep. And when you come in and do the opposite, That doesn't mean don't have structure. That doesn't mean don't give consequences, right? But it's how you present yourself with your words and with your actions and with your posture that makes such a big difference, I think.
1: Because the unconscious question is, are you for me? Mm -hmm. Are you against me? And if you're a stated enemy, I'm not going to do anything you say.
0: And you're you're validating why I'm using drugs in the first place because my fear is no one knows me. No one wants to see me. No one accepts me. So I went and found people who will. I went and found a substance that would not reject me, right? porn's not going to reject me. Drugs aren't going to reject me. Alcohol's not going to reject me. And then you found out I'm using these things to fight off rejection and you reject me.
1: There it is. Or the comedy of an out-of-control father who's mad at his out-of-control son.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yelling and screaming. Right. You know, hitting them, you know, all the things, throwing stuff because the kid got mad at school.
1: I had a mother ground her daughter for smoking her cigarettes. I said she was stressed. You taught her how to cope. Yeah. She smoked alongside you, and you grounded her. Mm-hmm. Oh, she has to wait till she's older to do what you do. I get it. You, you, are her example. That's right. And I guess that's that's what I I would love a parent to look in the fa- the mirror and say, Do I want my kid to use the words I use? Do I want it, my kid to pray the way I pray?
0: Mm-hmm. Watch the shows I watch. Yes,
1: you, you are know, a Use living- the friends that that's I it. have. Yep. You're a living example. And so, dumb parenting says, do what I say and not what I do. Mm-hmm. And that parent is mocked. Right. You hypocrite. And as a dad, that's convicting. And I think that's where I want my kids to hopefully be a better example than me. But I got to keep working on me, I got to keep doing my selfish things, which I think being selfish is biblical. Mm-hmm. As Jesus took time to be alone with the Father, that was like providing us an example to recharge, to reset. So there's a men's Bible study I've been going to for two years and I love it because it's seven o'clock on a Saturday morning, so I'm not missing family time. But it's a time where I can go sit with men and and be challenged and be corrected and be further sharpened so I can be a good dad for the weekend and love my kids. It's
0: good. And yeah. connect with them. I think parents have to when those things come up and they get they find their kid smoking they find their kid doing drugs they find their kid acting out or you know it's some substance or some use is to, to stop and realize I've got to figure out how we got here before yeah. I try to fix the problem that's it and I can't do that by myself which mm-hmm. is what you're saying I have to go to Bible study I have to have other Christians in my life I probably need to go to a therapist yeah. and talk to them about oh man I didn't realize that when his dad left when he was three that him smoking pot now at 14 has something to do with that sure I don't really want to admit that because I still feel responsible for that, and you know, there's all this stuff that falls into it. And then what happens is the kid continues to suffer and continues to be rejected, which means he's going to need the substance even more because we haven't connected and taken responsibility for what we can.
1: So then they kick him out of the family and say we don't allow addicts in our family. Oh, good job. Yeah. And I think this is not supposed to be a parenting podcast, but I, I feel like that's part of what the addict wants. Is I think the addict wants that intimacy requires responsibility. So if you're going to engage with me, if you're going to ask me to be vulnerable, you don't get to say whatever you want to say. That is not legal in any world. Mm -hmm. And so I think men and women both need to work on what am I asking? Because I would love to say that to a woman is if your husband's lying to you, it is not 100% his fault. And and, and the same, if a woman is lying to a man, that is not 100% her fault. Because if you have made her regret being honest... If, if, if you made him, made him regret for being honest, he will not be honest any longer. Yeah. And well, I think he, that that he, may be the dual responsibility of saying, I'm willing to be intimate. I'm willing to open up to you, but I need your commitment to not say everything you want to say.
0: Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah, I mean, I think people have to realize that they have to be in recovery together. That's it. That as a family, whether that's adults or children that the behavior they if they're hearing this podcast and learning what we're talking about then it doesn't have to be such a personal slight against them that their kids smoking pot yes or that their husband looked at porn or that their wife is on on facebook every day yeah but it doesn't have to mean that they did something wrong for that to happen so therefore they don't have to respond negatively and shame and yell and lecture because all that's going to do is get the person to do that stuff more
1: yeah, I heard a stat when, I uh, remember the show Intervention back in the 90s? Mm-hmm. Such a great show. Great, great education for drug addiction and what intervention's done right. But less than 20% of the families got therapy. Wow. All they did was gather, get the addict in the recovery, and the family never changed. The family, by the way, that created the addict never never admitted never humbly went and got worked on their own issues
0: yeah and i think that's what's so sad is that you know when we work with people and we sit with them and we see hear their story you know you see this behavior that comes in your office and it's like oh i do this i watch porn i do drugs you know once we sit with them long enough though we're like oh this makes perfect sense yeah you know what i mean like i'm not surprised by um why you do that and you know i like to say all the time it's not a mystery, you know, uh, to me why people smoke pot, smoke crack, look at porn, do drugs, drink alcohol. It's a mystery why they don't do all those things at the same time. You know, in the world that we live in, yeah. in the stress that we have, in the divorced homes, in the poverty, in the, you know, the absent fathers and all the things that we know about life. Right? Why yeah. are we not all just toking it up and drinking and looking at everything we we can? So it's a it's appalling to me as Christians, especially when we see a person and that are do that's doing that, and our instinct isn't to go, wow, I wonder what happened in their life that made them think that was a good idea. Mm. That made them think destroying themselves and destroying other people was a good idea. Yeah. You know, and instead we look at them and we go, How could they do that? I would never do that. That's unbelievable that a person could, you know, XYZ. And then we do that in our primary relationships. And it's like if you've been married to somebody for fifteen years and you're still stunningly surprised by why they can do something, then somewhere along the way, the communication both ways is a problem. Now, I'm not saying, right, we're not saying that there aren't those unique situations where somebody just completely blindly did everything, and it was a surprise and a shock. And it's not to put blame on the family. It's to say, to recover, it has to be a team effort. Right? The Addie might have got there by themselves. Yes. Most likely not. Yeah but they're still responsible for their behavior. Absolutely. But to recover, you got to do it together and you can't you can't beat them up on the way. And I and I guess what I look at is
1: that a lot of my addicts come from couples and families that don't even know what genuine connection looks like. Mm. Cuz they're like, "Yeah, we had date night last Friday." I'm like, "What did you all do?" They're like, "We watched a movie." I'm like, "That's not a date." Right. We 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 stared at a screen and breathed in the same room for 2 hours and call that intimacy. Mhm. When You know, in a power outage, there's these awkward moments where you actually have to talk to these people you're related to. (laughs) It's (laughs) hilarious to hear the, you know, first world problems of we actually had to talk, you know? Oh, yeah. And so I just love a, love a, a commitment to connection of my friends, of my wife, of my kids. Because I feel like part of the conservatism, some of the woundedness, let me say it that way, is that I think that we have people we can trust that we just choose not to. Mm. And then we're robbed the intimacy, we're robbed the connection, we're robbed the peace. Because James says, what, confess your sins one to another. My joke is, why would I tell you, a sinner, about my sin? But I think God knew in his genius that the confession leads to power, leads to a weakening of the temptation. Oh,
0: for sure. And I think that's the best thing about our groups, about AA, is that when you say these things out loud to other people, and then they look at you and they're like, yeah, me too, bro. That's it. Or I've done that before. Been there. Or, you know, that's something we, you know, all of a sudden this uniquely broken view of yourself, this depraved, horrible person, it's like, oh, that's not true. It's a Mm -hmm. challenge, right, to the lie that Satan is trying to, to knit in there. And as a spouse or as a family member or a parent, if you don't be a part of that tearing down of that, that lie that's underneath there, then you're just adding to the problem. And then they're not going to tell you, yeah. they're not going to come to you and say, Hey, I, I relapsed a little bit. I had a slip. I, I did, start, I did smoke some pot the other day because they're so afraid of the rejection. They're so afraid of the hammer coming down. They're so afraid of the behavior modification That's because you're proving to them you care more about their behavior than their heart. That's good. Right, Because their behavior says something somehow about you. It's good. Always oh, watching porn, always oh, doing drugs, always oh, drinking. Well, that means that, you know, that he doesn't love me. Hmm. Instead of, well, he doesn't love himself right now. Hmm. How can I help him see himself as God does? Now, again, that doesn't mean to take abuse or to not stand up for yourself or not have appropriate boundaries. But I think that's part of getting in, into therapy as a family and realizing, how do I do that? Hmm. Maybe I don't know what intimacy is myself. Maybe I don't know what boundaries are myself. Maybe I don't know how to set expectations myself and ask for what I need myself. And maybe this is a big cycle that is not my fault, but that I'm a part of, right. That I've been on the carousel with for 15 years and now it's all or nothing. And I get it. I mean, people feel unsafe and they feel scared and those boundaries are important. But when we set those, you know, those boundaries in a marriage, like a guillotine and just cut it off. I think that, you know, that always just feeds back to the, the truth that that addict's afraid of being true anyway. Yeah. What um What's different? So to wrap up, kind of, you said you have some groups going on. So what would you say is different or kind of give a breakdown of what the recovery process looks like? And that can be for just in general and maybe just highlight a little bit of, you know, if you're an alcoholic and you're out there struggling and you're listening to this and you're like, well, Maybe I do have more of a problem with it than I think. And maybe, you know, my, my family's been telling me, or if you're a spouse and you're you're like, yeah, my husband does do that all the time. And although I never really wanted to say anything about it, you know, it's causing problems. What are some of the barriers to getting into recovery and then what can they expect when they come in?
1: Well, I think the first barrier is being an intimacy disorder. There is such resistance to joining a group Mm -hmm. because who, who goes to this group? What do they look like? Are they like me? And so to get someone to come to a group one time is painful oh, yeah, because they have to really admit, okay, I can't do this on my own. And then to get them to come to a second group, because I think that the first group is always going to be awkward because you don't feel welcome. They don't know you. You don't know them. How much are you revealing? But I think that uh, my group has evolved. I started the group using the uh, workbook. And we enjoyed it, and it was a, it was a, definitely allowed us to get going and get to know each other. And then my group has evolved now into a process group, where much like an AA group is, where we come in and give a brief synopsis of what our week looks like, and what were what were we successful in, and what were we struggling in, mm-hmm. and what do we need from the group. And then we get into some intensive stuff, uh, things like the trauma egg or uh, the, the the circles of. What are temptations? What are dangerous areas for me? Um, but I, I like to have a practical group, uh, but I never want the group to be so clinical that we don't feel like eight friends sitting around laughing, yeah, encouraging each other, but there for each other to be honest. Because, I mean, we are in the South. Men typically don't prefer to be vulnerable and open and tearful. But when it happens, it's beautiful because it's genuine. Mm-hmm. It's a moment for us to be men for each other. Uh, Because I think Jesus was both tough and tender. Yeah. Uh, But I I do enjoy that my groups have evolved over the... uh, One of my... My first group was... I started last year. So it's been about a year and a half it's been going on.
0: And you're talking about the Facing the Shadow groups for sex addiction. That's right.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. And so... um, But I I enjoy them. And I I guess just talking to my groups about what they get the most out of, I think that's really kind of how we've evolved. uh, To keep a connection. To keep things going. That we don't stagnate or... Um. Or, or plateau, and I think that's that's often a fear. I think of is
0: why do I need to go to a
1: group? But what's that going to do for me?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? I've seen that in mine. You know, I think the most beautiful thing, again, is just people coming in expecting one thing, and realizing in their life that they don't have anything that they've ever been vulnerable with. Right. You know, like how many Bible studies have people been in where they go a whole year and yet no one actually talks about what they struggle with? Yeah. You know, what are their deep dark things and and I think that is that connection is the answer to addiction. That that hey, you see me at my worst, and you're still here, and you haven't abandoned me, and you accept me for who I am. If you can get that on a regular basis, you stop needing the other stuff. Yeah. You stop needing the conne- the false connection. You stop needing the dopamine. You start getting the serotonin, and for the first time in your life, you realize, oh man, I enjoy coming. You know, I don't know about you, but my, you know, yep. mine are like this is the my best hour of the week. Oh yeah. You know, I look forward to this every week. I look look forward to coming and. The newer guys and, and sometimes in different stages are like, ah, oh, I hate coming to this because they have to be vulnerable. Yep. You know, my clients, some of them call me an a-hole in group, you know, and I'm, we laugh. And, and the new guy, one of the new guys, you know, is like, well, you've never been that way. And, and it's because they cry and they get, you know, I, I tap into by being vulnerable with them and intimate with them and connecting with them. It makes them uncomfortable. They cry. They share their feelings. And then I'm bad, right? It's a joke. Yeah. But it's they don't like feeling that way. And over time, they enjoy it, but it's still kind of the running joke of, like, I'm causing it. When in reality, like, no, I'm just loving you, and you've just never experienced that. That's it. And so, therefore, that feels weird.
1: Yep. And I think part of connecting with a screen doesn't cost you anything. No. And I think that's where, when the buy-in, when the guys join my group and they really contribute. Because the only people that I've lost in my group are people that never gave, never brought anything to the potluck. Mm -hmm. And so, in recovery, we call them window shoppers. They looked at the meeting, they attended the meeting. they didn't bring anything or say anything in the meeting, right, so they got the least out of the meeting because they 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 came to shut someone up they they came to to get the wife off the back, and then they never come again or they quickly leave, yeah, and it's been funny to watch the other members kind of irritated, and then I point out, well, you know that was you, that was you three months ago,
0: yeah, <laughs> and they don't like that, no no, for sure. <laughs> but people come in and, you know, with an agenda or with an, you know, expectation and and it's hard and scary. It is. Yeah. So, you know, the recovery process basically is, you know, facing the shadow, uh, recovery zone. These are some workbook activities we take people through and in individual sessions. We usually parallel it, right? So we try to get people to go to group, try to get people to go to individual sessions. If there's a spouse, we try to get that spouse to come in and do some recovery work together. Um, and then I think one of the unique things that we get to do is the SDI, which is a lot of the, the testing that as a CSAT we get to do that other people can't do, um, and then the lie detector. Yes. Uh, you want to talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, so iDetect is a great, great software because we uh, in in gaining the education, we found out that there's such a human bias among the lie detection community that it is a human-scored test. Mm-hmm. And so iDetection was the first time we can use a digital it's actually a, measures the cornea and it measures the pulse, the increase or decrease of cornea, with like a 99% accuracy rate. In fact, me and Whitney set it up, and I purposely lied, and it 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 flagged me. It got me. That's hilarious. And so it was it was scary that something can look at your uh, your eyes. But I, I tell my addicts, please, if you're telling the truth, there is no reason not to do this. Mm-hmm. You want your truth to be heard. I want her to believe everything you said. Yep. Now, if you're not being truthful, don't waste the money. Right. You know, it's, you're not going to be validated. Um, and, and I think that's what we love it as a tool to help the recovery. Because if he's told 800 lies, she's going to be a little weary. He's going to be a little weary to to buy in that, oh, you're finally telling, oh, this is everything. Mm-hmm. And so I love that the lie detection can give the silver bullet to say, this is completely true. Yeah. I I want intimacy with you. I'm willing to run into the fire. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to save this. And that's what I tell the families of my addicts is if if he'll change, you're a fool to leave him. Mm. If he refuses to change, you're a fool to stay with him. Yep because he is on a reckless path to, to hurt even more than he has
0: right and that's that's what goes back to that conversation of what do we you know what do you do if you're a spouse of an addict and i think christians have such a hard time especially with the divorce idea and separating and you know it's messy yeah and so i think that's each individual situation uh has to be taken into consideration but again you just don't people can't do that alone you know, coming in and being in therapy and saying, okay, this is why I want to do it. This is why I don't want to do it. And us to be able to tweak and challenge and, and kind of talk through that and give ideas and to come back the next week and see if that worked and to help them set proper boundaries and see kind of where they end and where the addict begins and, and to figure all those kind of things out. And then for the addict, the same way to come in and say, okay, you do need validation. Like this was not your fault. You didn't just wake up at 36 and decide to cheat on your wife. I know you're being treated that way but let's look at how that got there and let's look at the secrets yeah. that you kept and let's look at the the habits and the hang-ups that you have in your life that your spouse knows nothing about and now they're just finding out and so they're responding out of fear and anxiety and trauma you got to calm all that down and it's a process right so uh i know sex addiction is you know can be a 2 to 3 year recovery process what would you say it is for like alcohol and drugs the same about the same sure i mean i think it's just trauma recovery yeah. uh, i think
1: it's very very similar because there's it's a complicated thing to put to a timeline because are they still relapsing are they being honest are they broken is there still some fight and still some shady habits mm-hmm. or times the phone is getting turned off or text messages are deleted or it just i think that's what takes the 3 to 6 months is completely committing to transparency Mm -hmm. which for every addict I've seen has been painful
0: right and it's gonna be a process so if you're a spouse or a family member out there you know you need to understand that it's not gonna usually be cold turkey right off the bat without any recovery or without any relapse or slip ups or mess ups and you're committing to that yes that doesn't excuse them or say they're not responsible for it but it's realizing when I when I find out my spouse is struggling with addiction to whatever it is they're dealing with, that this is going to be a long-term process, yeah. and there is not gonna be a quick, quick fix, and this is gonna take authenticity, it's gonna take vulnerability, it's gonna take money and therapy, but on the other side of it, right, as you've seen, we have family members and marriages and parents that say, man, we never had it this good. Yep. Right? Our marriage has never been as good as it is now.
1: Yeah, because what I say is, I feel sorry for a couple that's around a five or a six, they're bad, but they're not bad enough to get help. Mm. And so I, I, I think that you need to be a two in order to be a nine. That's good. Because then you're bad enough to get the help that's tools, the coping. And then when you're an eight or nine, you're like, wow, we went from being jealous of our friends to feel like we have a better marriage than our friends.
0: Oh, man, I see that all the time, right? As people come in, they get healthy, and they step back into the world and they're like, oh, wow, I didn't realize it was this bad. That's it. Like, I didn't realize everybody was as unhealthy as, yep. as they are. And again, which drives us all to wanting everybody to be more healthy and everybody to be more sober and, and to just, you know, to not put these big labels on everything and and to trigger so much shame. Yeah. just to realize like we're all a mess Mm -hmm. and most of us have trauma. Most of us have some form of coping or addiction or something that is causing issues in our lives. And if we can understand them and understand where they come from and take some personal responsibility on our side then we can heal and and grow and get better yeah but if we keep looking at addicts especially sex addicts but addicts in general as these dirty terrible people that we would never be you know like they just woke up one day and chose it then yeah we're going to be bitter and we're going to be angry we're just gonna validate that fear they already have dude i appreciate you coming on um what tell me when your groups are my groups are
1: uh, Tuesday at 11 o'clock, and they're Wednesday at 4.15. Okay. And then I think around the beginning of the year, I'm going to start a third group on Thursday nights at 4.
0: Okay. And then I have a group at 10 on Thursdays. Um, so this is Facing the Shadow Groups. You guys, would not get a workbook and come in um, and do the work. And it's for males only right now. I know we need to do a, um, a female sex addict group and... And you know, we need a male betrayed spouse group, and we're working on that stuff as we grow. Yeah. But Ross and I are not the only CSATs on staff. There's several more. If you look check out the website, um, you can see who's a CSAT and who works in the sex addiction world. And the biggest thing we can tell you within addiction is, you know, you have a safe a safe space here to connect and to practice, you know, practice recovery, not just sobriety, yeah, right, and just not doing it, but working on your heart and, and your mind and and the way you think about yourself and the way you think about others. And that leads to freedom. Any final final thoughts?
1: Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. It's been great to uh, to kind of give my spin on give my story. It's uh, I know God has been good to me, and I love helping these men, helping these women uh, to kind of earn their peace, earn their success, and feel proud of what they are now and not who they were.
0: It's good stuff, man. All right, Ross Githens, appreciate it. Episode twelve, we got it done. All right. (laughs) Thank you all. Subscribe on our YouTube channel. Uh, Subscribe on iTunes and wherever else you find podcasts or you listen to your stuff. We're usually there. Asking Why Podcasts. Thank you. God bless.